Okay, great to see you this morning. Matthew chapter 13, Revelation chapter 3. Those two chapters, stick a thumb in both of those. Um, We're going to start right off the top in Matthew 13. Um, I I heard a, a guy say this, and I think it's true, that hard words produce soft people, and soft words produce hard people. And I think that's particularly true with preaching, that there are times that our hearts and our lives need hard words, to, to produce tender and soft hearts toward God and other people. Okay, so that's my preface for this morning. <laughs> my preface for this morning is uh, there are times, I, not every sermon, but there are times that, that we need the scriptures to body slam us, you know? And uh, now I'm not saying everyone, but there are times that we need the scriptures to grab us by the feet and, and throw us off the top turnbuckle. Okay, now that's what this one felt like to me. I'm just going to preface it. I don't know how this is going to work out for you this morning, but that's what it felt like for me this week as I kind of thought through this um, and kind of laid this down over my own life. Like it was body blow after body blow, and I think Mike Tyson was punching me. It's one of those deals. And so Matthew 13 is, is where we start. Um, Jesus has been, uh, he's been publicly teaching at this point. And so you pick it up. He is, he's teaching publicly these parables in Matthew 13. And his disciples, it's like they're a third grader in a calculus class. They have no idea what's going on. I mean, they look at him like, can you, will you stop and explain this? I don't know what you're saying. I, like the, I'm, I, it's math. We're supposed to be dealing with numbers, not letters. I don't know what those letters are. Okay, that's what you get here in Matthew 13. And so um, it says that he goes into a house with his disciples, and he begins to explain these parables to them. And then he rolls out this, this new parable in verse 44. And I want you to look at this, verse 44. Matthew 13, verse 44. It says this, the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying this is what life is like as a citizen in the kingdom. This is what life inside the kingdom is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Okay, so you've got a guy, he finds a treasure in a field, he leaves it there. He goes and covers it up, and then this is what it says. Look what he does here. Then in his joy, and I would circle that word joy, that's a really important word in there. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Okay, he's saying this is what life is like in the kingdom. Like as a citizen of the kingdom, this is, this is the deal. You find a new treasure. So, so you have all these things that were precious to you. And you stumble onto this new treasure and now everything is redefined. Now this new treasure is the dominating thing in your life. Now this new treasure, you will gladly give everything you have and leverage everything you got for that treasure. Okay, I, I think it's this picture of conversion is what he's throwing out here. And he's basically saying that when, when you are converted, when you are a child of God, when you are one of his, when you are a biblical Christian, that there is a reversal of loves that, that happens. You have a complete reversal that goes on. The guy stumbles onto this treasure and all of a sudden in his joy, it's not like a begrudging submission. It's not a, well, they've got a gun to my, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. There's this great reversal. It is like a guy that has a bar of gold in the desert while he's thirsting to death. And him joyfully trading all of his gold for a goblet of water. 
There's this great reversal that happens when you're in the kingdom, when you're one of God's, this reversal of loves. And that reversal of love, here's what it does to us. It produces in us a single-minded passion for Jesus. It produces in us this hard pursuit of God. That's what it does. When, when you have this reversal of loves, it creates lives that are radically reoriented around the gospel, radically reoriented around Jesus, that are madly pursuing God. That's what it produces in us. People who are desperate for Jesus because he is the water in the desert while you're thirsting to death. That's what it creates. Okay, so um, this was probably five years ago. I'm driving back. It, my grandma had like her 90th birthday. And so um, Laura and I are driving back from Oklahoma. We're at about the border, right? I look over. Laura's passed out in the passenger seat, right? And so it's like midnight. One, like it's late. I'm driving back when, when a couple of things hit me that completely caught me off guard. Like there, there are these unspoken things in life that you know when these things have happened, you've passed from like adolescence to adulthood. Okay, there are these special few things. And at this moment, I think there was this reality of, man, the tide has turned. Things are now different. And here are the, here are the two. I look down, 12.30, 1 a.m., driving in a truck back from Oklahoma. Here it comes, number one. I look down in my hand and there is a cup of coffee. Right? And this is not like creamer with a little bit of coffee mixed in. This is straight up black coffee in my hand. And I'm drinking it. Now, not only am I drinking it, but I'm actually enjoying that cup of coffee, right? So, I mean, that is not a, a teenage thing. Your 13-year-old probably doesn't wake up on Saturday morning and say, hey, will you please brew a cup of coffee? I, am, I want some of that. Doesn't do that, right? Now, Frappuccino, maybe, but the black stuff, probably not happening. It's kind of an adult thing. Okay, now here was the second thing, maybe even more shocking. I looked down at the radio, and I realized I am listening to talk radio. And not only am I listening to it, but I am enjoying talk. I mean, your 13-year-old does not say, hey, mom, I know it's 10 o'clock. I know I need to be in bed. I really think I need to stay up for the O'Reilly Factor tonight. Your 13-year-old does not say that. That is, that is like specifically an adult thing when that stuff is happening. Okay, now, now here has been one of the major things, that the, as, the older that I've gotten that has happened in me personally. God has continued to grow in me a love for Christian biography, for good Christian biography. And I am so thankful for that. Because here, here's why I'm so thankful. You get to see, if you'll read good Christian biography, you'll see people who have had the great reversal. Like these loves have been completely shifted. And they have this hard pursuit of Jesus that doesn't look like what we see around us. There is this beautiful reversal, this hard pursuit of more of God. Okay, like take this one, Henry Martin. Born in the late 1700s, he, he had all these academic accolades. He could have gone, probably done whatever he wanted to do in the business world and been successful. Okay, he, the great reversal happens. This new pursuit takes hold of his heart. I mean, this new pursuit has him. It is the thing. And in that pursuit, he, he decides, I've got to get the gospel to the people in India. He arrives on the shores of India. And listen to these words that he said. He gets there, looks at the people, and here's what he says. I would be willing to be torn in pieces 
If I could only hear the sobs of repentance, if I could see the eyes of faith directed to the Redeemer. You heard anybody talk, talk like that lately? Yeah, I mean, I, you hear that sort of language. And listen, this has nothing to do with being in India. This can be in man. It doesn't matter. But a zealous heart, the reversal has happened. This hard pursuit of Jesus has occurred. This is what it looks like. This is what it produces. It produces this, this affection for God, this passion for God. That's what it does to us. Okay, uh, uh, this, this is one of my favorites. A guy named John Bunyan. He was born in the 1600s. He was a Puritan. Um, he gets saved in his early 20s. He becomes a pastor of a church. Um, he, he's got a wife, gets married, um, has four children, uh, children. The first one is born blind. His first wife dies. He remarries an incredible lady. Her name is Elizabeth. And about a year into that marriage, he is about to get thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. Okay, he's about to get... Okay, this is one year into a marriage where he has brought four kids in that are his and not hers. One's blind, and here he goes off to prison. Here's what he says as he's looking um, forward at prison. He says this. Before I came to prison, I saw what was coming and had two considerations warm up on my heart. So he's saying, listen, I knew this was coming. Here's what happened. Here's what I was thinking. Here was the first consideration. The first was how to be able to encounter death. Should that be here, my portion? Don't hear people talk like that very often. Okay, here's the second one. And the second consideration, this scripture was of great use to me, 2 Corinthians 1, 9. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Okay, and this is what he says. By this verse, I was made to see that if ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can be properly called a thing of this life. I must pass a sentence of death even on myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment. And all, everything has the sentence of death as dead to me and myself as dead to them. He spends 12 years in prison. In there, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, outside of the Bible, the number one book, the most widely read book in Christian history. Wrote that in 12 years in prison. All he had to do was just say, listen, I won't preach. I'm out. I won't do it. And they would let him walk out. Okay, now this isn't just in history that you see this. You see this all throughout the Bible. You see, and we've talked about Paul a lot here lately. But you see it in Paul. Like in, in Philippians 3, he's going to kind of give his list of accolades. Here's my pedigree. Here are my former pursuits. Here are all the things that I have done. And then he gets to the end of that list and he says, listen. But here's what I look at those now as. I consider them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I mean, they are nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. They're nothing. Like they have all got the sentence of death when I look at Jesus beside them. They all look like pennies next to the great pearl. Okay, that's what he's saying, that I have got a new treasure. You see this in David all throughout the Psalms. Psalms 27 is a great example, verse 4, where he says, okay, there is one thing that I ask. And this, this, is, this is it. This is the one thing that I'm seeking that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon his beauty and inquire in his temple. That is the one thing. I don't have 15 pursuits. I don't have three. I don't have two. I have one pursuit, and that is it. Okay, now here's what I think is interesting. 
is when you bring this into modern day, us doing the deal, living life. You know how rare that is to find? How many people do you know that talk like that? How many people do you know that live like that? How many people do you know that are dominated by a single desire to know Jesus? Okay, so if I have one prayer for us in 2010, this is towards the top of the list, is that we as a church, as a body of believers, would be zealous for the things of Jesus. The reversal would happen, the pursuit would take hold, and we would run after the treasure, the pearl, and we would be willing to sell everything to get it. Our hand would be wrapped around Jesus with everything else left in an open. I mean, if there's one prayer that I have for you personally, it would be that. If there's one prayer for us corporately, it would be that that would be our mark, our reputation, our lives. Okay, and this is why it's so important. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation starts with this beautiful vision of Jesus. Like if you read Revelation chapter 1, you're going to see Jesus I mean, it it is fully exposed Jesus. It is him on a white horse, flaming eyes, ready to do... You get to see a beautiful vision of the reigning king. Okay, then you get into chapter 2, and Jesus starts to talk to churches. And I just think it's interesting. Because I, I think it's interesting just to consider the question, what would Jesus say to us or about us? And so Jesus has got, I mean, he's got the full disclosure here. He's about to look at seven churches and say, here's your report card. Here is what I see. I'm looking at you and this is what I see in you. Okay, now you get to the last one, the church in Laodicea. And that's where we're going to pick it up in chapter 3, verse 14. This is the, the seventh church, the last one that he talks to. In verse 14, it starts like this. And to the angel, that's the messenger. So to the messenger, going to give the letter to the church in Laodicea. This is what, this is what I'm writing. And then he goes on, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Okay, so he's saying, listen, the, these are the words of the amen. These are the words of Jesus. These are my words to you. So I, I think it's just Jesus saying, listen, this is, not, this is not just anybody speaking to you here. This is the king speaking. I mean, th- this is me speaking. He goes on and says, okay, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He's not saying that Jesus was the first creation. He's saying that all things were created through Jesus. And then verse 15, look at, look at what this says. Jesus looked at the church and says, I know your works. Okay, I, I did a little bit of study in the Greek this week, and I found out that, let me just unpack that for you. Here's what that really, really means. That Jesus knows your works. That's what it means. That Jesus looks inside of all of us and Jesus knows. There is no computer screen that he doesn't see. There is no TV that he can't watch beside you. There is no door that you can close. I mean, Jesus is looking at the church in Laodicea and he wants them to know right off the bat that I see it all. There's nothing that's hidden from it. I am everywhere. I see all things. And here's just the truth about sin is sin loves secrecy. 
And the more we think it's hidden, the more it will gravitate to the center of our hearts and we'll coexist with it. But sin is never a secret. He's saying right off the bat, I know your works. I know how you're living. I know your life. I know when you wake up, when you go to sleep. I know when, I know it all. I see everything. I know your works. And listen to what he says. Next phrase. I know your works. And then he's going to say this. You're, you're neither hot nor cold. I, you're neither cold or hot here. Okay, now, now listen to what I think Jesus is really saying here and, and kind of the, the underlying idea is not only does Jesus know your works, but Jesus can tell by your works what your spiritual temperature is. Your works reflect your spiritual temperature, your zeal. And Jesus is looking at the church in Laodicea and he's saying this, listen, I know your works, I see it. And here's what I can say about it, that you're not hot or cold. I can tell by how you live, I can tell what your spiritual temperature is. I can tell if you are zealous for me, if your heart is consumed with me, if you are on the, like this passionate pursuit, if you're desperate for me, or if you have grown lukewarm and complacent. I can tell by your works, your temperature. He goes on to say, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. And, and then look at these words. Would, or I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, let me just stop there. Here's what Jesus is saying. I know your works. I can gauge your spiritual temperature by looking at your works. And then he's going to say this, that your works are lukewarm. This is the judgment call on them. I'm looking at them. I know them. I'm looking at them. They're telling me something here. And here's what they're telling me, that you are lukewarm people. That you are people who are not on a single pursuit to know me. You have got a thousand pursuits. You are people who, who I am not your treasure. I am one among many treasures for you. So he's looking at the church and he wants them to know, listen, I'm calling you out on this. I know your works and they tell me your heart is lukewarm. You are not running after me. You're not doing it. Next phrase. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Look what he says. I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I, I just think that's interesting imagery, right? I'm going to like, I mean, he's bringing vomit into the equation here. I, I mean, he could have used a lot of different. He could have used a lot of different illustrations. He could have said, man, when I think of you, it's like, okay, you're lukewarm and you're like a weed in the yard. I mean, you are like a bogey on the scorecard. Okay, now, when, when you think bogey, you think, man, I, I don't like a bogey on the scorecard, but I, I mean, I can kind of live with it. It's not horrible. When you think of weed in the yard, you're like, man, it's not life. Or, but when you think vomit, and just as an aside, we, we've kind of had this bug going through, and I just want to publicly apologize. I think that started with Laura and I. I just apologize for that. Like, we have been well acquainted with vomit here lately. And um, when, when you use the word vomit, you're bringing in a whole different category of things. I mean, there is smell associated with that. There is, I mean, that is like a violent reaction to something that's disgusting in your body. Okay, that is what vomit is. And Jesus is looking at them and he's saying, listen, here is the truth. I see your works. They're telling me something about your spiritual temperature. It tells me that you're lukewarm. And here's the truth about lukewarm spirituality. It makes me want to vomit. It disgusts me. That's what he's saying. 
that lukewarm spirituality is not pleasing to me. Now, let me just clear up this one point of confusion. I, I, I think there is a common misconception that, that people look at this passage and say this. Okay, so Jesus is saying that you either need to be like red hot for me or cold. Like you either need to be full on or just walk away and, and run off. That's not the idea. Hot and cold in this, in this analogy, in this, like it's all, both of those things are good. So around Laodicea, there were hot springs that had medicinal uses. There were cold springs that were refreshing and good to the taste. There was a lukewarm resource of water. It came in and it was useless. It was dirty. It was bad to the taste. So when he says you're lukewarm and I want you to be hot or cold, he's saying, listen, I want you zealous for me. I want you running after me. I don't want you complacent, lethargic. I I don't want that for you. I want you on a full frontal pursuit of me. That's what I want. That's what I'm after. I don't want your leftovers. I want all of you. Now, let me tell you why I think he says this. Um, I kind of gave this illustration of proposal last week. I told you that Laura and I were on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. This whole thing. I even wrote her a song, right? Did the whole deal. Okay, so um, at the end of this song, I asked her to be my wife. I was a terrible singer. Couldn't even play the guitar very well. Asked her to be my wife. Now, now let me tell you this. At the moment of, of proposal, here's what I had done. I had shoved all my chips in. I had counted the cost. I had leveraged everything for that question. Now, let me tell you what I would not have liked to to have gotten in return. I would not have liked to have gotten, um, well, Rodney, let me think about that. Um, Hey, Rodney, I've got 14 other boyfriends. Let me go check with them and see what they think first. Um, uh, Let me go, let me go check with these other lovers before I, before I give you the answer. Okay, now look at me here. When we are lukewarm as followers of Jesus, here's why it's disgusting. It is as if we kick him out of his own house and say, sit on the porch for me. I've got 14 other lovers that want my time. When I get bored with them, I'll come back to you. That's what lukewarm spirituality is. It's taking the treasure And saying, you're not gold, you're you're copper. Kicking him out the door. And he says, man, it disgusts me. It makes me want to vomit. Let's keep reading, verse 17. And he's going to give us the profile of what a lukewarm heart says and and kind of what it's communicating. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich. This is the profile of the lukewarm. You say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. I'm rich. I need nothing. Here's the profile of the lukewarm. It looks at God and says, "I, I I, I really don't need you. I mean, really, I don't. Okay, so if you're sitting in this room and, and you drove here this morning, you've got a cell phone, you've got a computer, internet access, you've got all that, um, you're in probably the top couple of percent of the world in richness. If you're sitting in the room with all that, just know this, that you are rich. And let me, I, I, let me just go ahead and say it like this. If you're in this room today, you are rich in this world. You are rich. If you're in this room this morning, just know the poorest of us, we are rich. Most of the world lives off $2 or less. We are rich people in this room. 
And here's the problem with riches. Riches can mask things for us. It makes it really hard to see reality. Riches can give us a false sense of security. See, when we're rich, we wake up this morning and it's real hard to cultivate a dependence on God when we've got everything we need. Okay, it's really hard to develop and cultivate a, God, I am desperate for you when we have everything temporal that we need here. I mean, we can wake up this morning and be totally unaware of the fact that we didn't wake up, that God woke us up, that our heart beats right now because Jesus is commanding it to beat, that the world didn't implode this morning because Colossians says that he sustains it. Okay, rich, here's what richness does, wealth does for us. It's this mask that covers all that, makes it so hard to see the way things are, makes it so hard to see reality and riches, wealth. It makes us believe that our hands are on the wheel, that we're in control, that God is at our beck and call. Okay, look at this next phrase here. I I think you see this. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. And then look at what Jesus says in return. But you are not realizing. You don't see the way things are. You can't see reality because you're blinded to it. He says, here's the reality. That you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, Jesus is saying, listen, let me give you a snapshot of the truth. You are pitiful. You are poor. You are wretched. You are naked people and you are in need of a Savior who will come along and clothe you. You are in need of a Savior who will, who will save you from your wretched sin. You are in need of a God who will spread out the banquet feast so you can have food. You are in desperate need of God, but it is so hard for us to feel that here. He says, listen, here's the problem. You don't really, I I think he's looking at the church in Laodicea and saying, listen, you are so deceived. You have built for yourself security and safety and you are materially rich, but you are spiritually bankrupt. Now, I I think this is an interesting idea here that I don't think the church in Laodicea I I don't, I mean, any church, I I don't think any of us would, would beat our chest and say, listen, we are rich and prosperous. We don't need God for it. I don't think any of us would say that. I mean, these guys, they were materially rich people. That was a rich city. They probably had nice big churches with nice good programs doing all their little things, all their little ministries. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, listen, underneath all that, I can see underneath the surface. And here's the truth. I don't know who you're trying to fool, but you are lukewarm people. You are lukewarm people running after a thousand treasures. Okay, now, now let's bring this um, back to, to us for just a second. And let me, let me just give our problem for us in this room. Here's our problem. Is that we live in the land of the lukewarm. I'm going to say this again. We live in the land of the lukewarm. It is the spiritual climate that we are in. If you base what you're going to live like for Jesus and how you are going to pursue Jesus off of what you see around you, you have no chance. This is why I would encourage you this year, get some good Christian biography and read it. 
I mean, it is like flying into L.A. from the plane. You see the smog. But when you're in it, looking up from the ground, you would say, that's a perfectly clear sky. It is the air we breathe is lukewarm air. We have lukewarm churches with lukewarm people in them. So let me just make a plea with you. Don't be normal. Don't go that route. Be zealous. Be a different kind of a follower of Jesus than what you see around you. Our land is lukewarm. Don't go there. Here's the second problem. Is that we can be lukewarm and not even realize it. We can be it without even realizing it. I think the church in Laodicea would have said, if you'd asked them the question, how do you think you're doing? How do you think Jesus sees your church? I think here's what they would have said. We've got great buildings. We're doing good programs. Man, we're reaching people doing, I think they would have said, we're doing good. And in reality, you see the report, like you see Jesus look at them and say, listen, you take your big buildings, you build all you want to do, but you have missed the treasure. You've missed it. Under your seat, um, a guy named Francis Chan wrote a book called Crazy Love. In the fourth chapter of that book, it's worth, it's worth buying the book. Um, I, I want to give for you how he profiles the lukewarm. And I, I just want to see if this registers with you. This, this is his profile of the lukewarm. Because here's what I really want to ask you today. I mean, this, this is where this is going this morning is I want to look you in the eye and I want to ask you this question. Does this describe you? Are you lukewarm, complacent, lethargic? Or do you have a burning passion to know Jesus? Profile the lukewarm. Number one, lukewarm people attend church fairly regularly. It's what's expected of them. What they believe good Christians do, so they go. Number two, lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. If they have a little extra and it's easy and safe, they do so. After all, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Number three, lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. They desire to fit both at church and outside of church. They care more about what people think of their actions, like church attendance and giving, than what God thinks of their hearts and lives. Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They don't uh, genuinely hate sin and aren't truly sorry for it. They merely, they're merely sorry uh, because God is going to punish their sin. Lukewarm people don't really believe that this new life Jesus offers is better than the old sinful one. Number five, lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they don't act. They assume such action is for extreme Christians, not the average ones. Number six, lukewarm people, people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, coworkers, or friends. And here's why. They do not want to be rejected. They fear others more than Jesus. Lukewarm people, we are cowards in front of other, uh, other people. They do not want to make people uncomfortable by talking about private issues like religion. Number seven, lukewarm people gauge their morality or goodness by comparing themselves to the secular world. Number eight, lukewarm people say they love Jesus, and he is indeed part of their lives, but only part. They've got all, like their, their, their life is compartmentalized. Like we have all these different segments, but Jesus just stays over here in this one. 
Number nine, lukewarm people love God, but they do not love him with all their heart, soul, and strength. Number 10, lukewarm people love others, but do not seek to love others as much as they love themselves. Number 11, lukewarm people will serve God and others, but there are limits to how far they will go or how much time, money, energy they are willing to give. Number 12, lukewarm people think about life on earth much more than about eternity in heaven. Daily life is mostly focused on today's to-do list, this week's schedule, next week's vacation. Rarely, if ever, they consider the life to come. Regarding this, C.S. Lewis wrote, If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. Thirteen, lukewarm people are thankful for their luxuries and comforts and rarely consider trying to give as much as possible to the poor. 14, lukewarm people do whatever is necessary to keep themselves from feeling too guilty. They want to do the base minimum to be good enough without it requiring too much of them. Lukewarm people ask the wrong set of questions. The questions always sound like this. How far can I go before it's considered sin? Rather than how can I keep myself as pure as possible? Okay, so it's the wrong set of questions. Next one, 15. Lukewarm people are continually concerned with playing it safe. They are slaves to the God of control. This focus on safe living keeps them from sacrificing and taking risks for God. 16. Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so that they never have to. They don't have to trust God if something unexpectedly happens. They have their savings account. They don't need God to help them. They have their retirement plan in place. They don't genuinely seek out um, what life God would have them live. They have figured and mapped all that out. They don't depend on God on a daily basis. Their refrigerators are full, and for the most part, they are in good health. The truth is, their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. 17. Lukewarm people probably pray before meals and at bedtime, but that is where communion with God stops. 18. Lukewarm people prob- probably drink and swear less than average, but besides that, there's really... Uh, No difference in the typical unbeliever. They equate their partially sanitized lives with holiness. But that couldn't be more wrong. Now, okay, let's just be honest in this room. I I think when we hear stuff like this, I'm asking you to make the judgment call on you. I'm not out to say you're this. I'm I'm asking you, what are you? And I think this would be the consistent response across this room. I think this is what it would be. I feel that I am lukewarm. I feel that I'm lukewarm. I mean, when you read that list, I mean, you, I, I can see, I can see my, my, so I think the consistent response would be, man, I feel like I am, I am that. Now, this is what's most concerning for us in this room this morning, is that we will say that We will read Revelation 3. We will hear a sermon like this. And listen to me. We will be content walking out of this room without changing. We'll be content with saying, that's right. I'm this. Without making drastic steps to change that. I mean, I think this is the, this, this is the, oh, wow. That was perfect timing. Let's try that one more time. This is going to be the heart, heart of this passage. Okay, I'm back. The, this, this is the heart of the passage. 
I think Jesus is looking at lukewarmness in us and he's saying this. It is like a cancer in you. And I don't use that word lightly. I use that word as cancer will kill you. And I think Jesus looks at it and says, if you had, if tomorrow you, you got the verdict, you've got cancer, you know what would happen? Everything in life, you would quit your job to move to a hospital if you had to. You would do anything in the world to fight that cancer. And I think Jesus is saying this is a spiritual cancer that at the end of the day will kill you if you don't fight that. Okay, let's keep reading here and we'll start to wrap this up. Verse 18. I counsel you. So I think this is Jesus. He's talking to the church. I mean, he's talking to us here. I counsel you. I am pleading with you. I think you see maybe a shift in tone. This is the groom. This is Jesus talking to his bride, pleading with his bride to come back, pleading with his bride. I am on the porch. Let me in. I mean, this is the bride pleading with the, the groom, pleading with the bride. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich with white garments so that you may clothe yourself. You're naked. You need the white garments. You need to be clothed. So that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This is what Jesus is saying. Listen, you are blind, you're poor, you're pitiable. And I am the Savior who can clothe you. I mean, I can give you the ointment so your eyes can see. You need me. Come back to me. Don't sit in your lukewarmness and die. Run after me. And then look, look at this next phrase. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. You know, like I really think a lot of us in here need godly discipline this morning. I think we need the Holy Spirit. This is what's happened to me this week. The Holy Spirit has brought out his little paddle of reproof. Actually, it felt like a big one. Big paddle of reproof and discipline. And he has swatted me this week. And I think a lot of us need that. I think we need to be shaken out of our cultural lukewarmness into what the Bible would call normal. This week, I spent a day asking this question. Man, am I for real? Like, is this, is this legitimate? Is this just a part of what I do? Or is this the dominating, is this the dominating thing? In, is Jesus the treasure are one among many. Man, I spent a day just saying, God, I don't want to be that. I do not want to be lukewarm. I do not want to live my life that way. I do not want to be lethargic. I want to see you as precious, as, as water in the desert, as something I can't live. God, grow in me a desperation for you. Man, and I pray that for you. I pray that the Holy Spirit would mark your 2010 by that. A desperation for the things of God. A zealous spirit. Look what he says here. I reprove and discipline. He says this, so be zealous and repent. I mean, that's the message. Don't be lukewarm. Be zealous. That's what I want from you. 
And here's what zealous means. I put this quote up here on the screen. Here's what it means to be zealous. A zealous man in, re- in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. He sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God, whether he lives or dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, rich or poor, whether he pleases men or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or thought foolish, whether he gets blamed or whether he gets praised, whether he gets honor or shame for all this the zealous man cares nothing at all he burns for one thing and that one thing is to please god and to advance god's glory and man if i have a prayer for you it would be that you would be zealous people so god has brought this to your lap this morning here's what he's saying are you that are you zealous if not here's the counsel repent of that repent of your lukewarmness rodney repent of that it disgusts me. It doesn't please me. I can see. You're not, you know, you're not fooling me. I see behind you. Verse 20. Behold, I, and this is beautiful. Behold, I stand at the door not. He is talking to the church and saying, you have put me outside of the church in your lukewarmness. You have thrown me on the porch while you have paraded your new loves in. And I am calling from the porch to unlock the door. And I'm not calling as somebody that's a servant here. I'm calling as the owner of the house. I can rip the door off the hinges. But I am pleading with you as the groom to the bride. Open up the door. I am the treasure here. I am the, I I am it. And then look what he says. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I mean, that's the picture of intimacy. That is the picture of closeness. This is Paul saying, I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. This is him saying that all of these other things are rubbish that I may gain Christ. I mean, that, that's what it is here. And man, I pray your 2010 would be marked by that. So let me give you two things that I, I just want to encourage you to do this week. Two things. Number one is that you would, you would allow the holy gaze of God to examine your life, that you would honestly evaluate you. It is so important for us in seasons of life to step out of life so we can work on life. I mean, can I just encourage you to take a morning, take a few hours this week, and to ask yourself this question. Are you for real? Or are you just plain? Are you for real? Is this thing legitimate? Okay, I want to give you a resource here. On the website, under you go to stonegate-church.com under resources. You'll see, a, it's called this, a silence and solitude template. And it's just a list of questions. Some of them are going to be more geared to me. It's what I use this week. I think it will serve you well to spend a couple of hours a morning this week and to allow the holy gaze of God to convict you, to show you, to encourage you. Are, are you for real? Are, are you? Now, I would encourage you to grab that. You can, it's a Word document. You can modify it to fit you. Uh, okay, now listen to me on this. If you don't do that, if you do not take time to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, it takes time to do that. I'll promise you, you will not change. You'll walk out of here and say, that was convicting. That was, I'm probably, won't change. So I'm, I'm pleading, 
schedule that into your week. You've got a few days off, perfect time as you think about 2010, you evaluate 2009. Take some time this week to honestly evaluate yourself. And then let me give you this one. Number two is to run after the will of God in your life. Okay, now there there are elements of the will of God that are real plain to us. I mean, the Bible is going to real clearly say, don't lie. Honor your wife. Serve your wife. Serve your, I mean, the Bible is going to be real clear on a thousand different things. But there are a lot of things that are not clear. I mean, there are a lot of things that we have to wade through personally. And with Jesus and the Holy Spirit say, God, will you solidify convictions in me for this next year? So I, I think we need to think about how we, how we do the TV thing. Normal is three to four hours a day in front of the TV. I'm not on a crusade to bash the TV. I'm not. I'm just saying, I don't know if that structures your life in such a way that you're going to be zealous for the things of God. I I don't know. If you'll spend 20 minutes a day reading good Christian books that will be meat for your soul, 20 minutes a day, you can get through 15 books if you're an average reader this year. So I'm just saying, I think we need to monitor our TV intake. I think we need to monitor our internet intake. If we're spending 14 hours a day on Facebook, there might be a problem there. Okay, so I'm just saying you need to, like, here's the point. Do your habits, the structure of your life, does it foster zeal for Jesus? Or does it deplete that? Does it turn your gaze to other things? And you need to treat it like cancer if it does. Okay, now, now here's the thing. I could say, do this, and we're all prone to wanting rules, but we can have rules without Jesus. Like, the point is for you to do the hard work with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, allowing them to give you solid convictions on what will make you a zealous follower of Jesus. Viewing him as, as water in the desert, as the treasure. What's going to do that? Okay, we'll finish with the promise. Verse 21. The one who conquers. Okay, that's designated for believers. And there's all this debate in the scripture. Is he talking about, is lukewarm? He spits him out of that. Is, that. is that saying like, that's not a Christian? Or is that a Christian? Can, okay, the point is this. I don't want to be spit out of anybody's mouth. Especially Jesus's. I want to be pleasing there. Now, I want him to, Jesus has sensitive taste buds, I'll promise you. And lukewarm spirituality it's the gag reflex form. Now, I don't want that. Now, I want my life to be pleasing there. I want to run after him. And listen, this is a pleasing life to Jesus. Are you desperate for him? Are you desperate for him? I mean, th- that's the deal. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Is that not an unbelievable promise? To the ones who conquer, you are zealous followers of Jesus. Here's the promise. In some weird way, you're going to sit on on my throne with me. And that's not saying we're going to be like God. We are not saying Mormons are correct here, right? We are not going to be deified. But in some way, Jesus is going to say, you sit, you sit beside me. I mean, you're going to sit and rule with me. Isn't that beautiful? But that is to him who conquers, the zealous one. And then verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just Laodicea, Midlothian, Texas, Stonegate Church. 
Oh, that we would have ears that hear. Amen? Let's pray. As the band comes up this morning, here's, uh, here's how I want to finish for you. Um, may, maybe you take the profile of the lukewarm, and as, they, as we just sing the last song, I mean, it's, it's the normal thing we do here at the end. We're going to sing a song, but maybe you just need to sit, and maybe you just need to read over that list. Are you lukewarm? Are you complacent? Are you sitting there? Or is your heart zealous for the things of God? And I mean, are you running after him with everything in you? Desperate. And then I want to ask you to pray something for yourself as we sing this song. I mean, if you're serious about it, if you're not, then, I mean, that's, that's cool. But if you're serious about it, I... I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. And this is my prayer for Stonegate. One of my prayers for Stonegate this year is that we would say, God, will you do anything and everything that you have to to make us zealous? Will you do anything and everything so that we would see you as the treasure? So that we would see you as water in the desert? so that we would trade our gold for goblets. So Jesus, I pray that. I pray that over our church. God, I pray that you might use this morning in our lives for our good and your glory. God, I pray that you might use it to stir in us affection for you. God, I pray that you might use it to stir in us a heart that would love you and want to live for you and and want to pursue you. God, I pray that you might use it to stir in us conviction. God, I pray that you might use it to shake us out of lukewarmness, of complacency. God, I pray that you might use it to help us identify habits that are draining our spirituality. I pray that you might might use this morning to help us see that the grind of life has dulled our spiritual desperation. So God, make us zealous people. And if you're in here today and you've never seen God as the treasure, if you've never stepped across the line of faith and said, God, save me. I want you. I want a relationship with you. I mean, I just encourage you to uh, mark that that little circle on your guest card that says how to establish a relationship with Jesus. We'll follow up with you. We'd love to continue that dialogue. So Jesus, will you work in our midst? God, I pray that, that you would make this church a sweet aroma. A sweet aroma. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand where you are?